Leviticus, the third book of the Torah. The book of Leviticus includes the many laws concerning sacrifices and the rites of the priests of the tabernacle. I'm sure that both of our B'nai Mitzvah students have been struggling to write Divrei Torah sermons on these rites. I know that Kayla and I have enjoyed studying on that. Leviticus is also known as the biblical source for much of our current discussion surrounding gender, sexuality, and this evening we're going to speak a little about homosexuality. This year we open the sacred book with an environment of change as well as retrenchment regarding the status of homosexuals throughout the world. We recently concluded a Winter Olympics, which was politically charged by the Russian government's fierce crackdown over the rights of openly homosexual citizens. Meanwhile, world governments are responding to the Ugandan government's horrific legislation, punishing homosexuality and even those who harbor openly homosexual citizens with lengthy prison sentences, with a minimum of 14 years for someone who is homosexual. And here in the US, the legislature of Arizona passed a bill which would have allowed individuals to deny service to homosexuals on the basis of their personal religious beliefs. Thankfully, reason and rationality ultimately prevailed as Governor Janet Brewer vetoed this form of sanctioned bigotry. Meanwhile, 17 states and the District of Columbia have legalized gay marriage so far to date, with over 40 cases regarding same-sex marriage currently moving through our court systems. It's only a matter of time until the Supreme Court will have no choice but to weigh in on this divisive issue. This evening, I'd like to more deeply examine the biblical injunction against homosexuality as found in the book of Leviticus. As this text often serves as the basis for anti-homosexual arguments, I'm hoping to submit a textually based argument for permitting and even celebrating these events as simchas in their own right. Yes, it's true that Leviticus 18.22 states, do not lie with a male as one lies with a woman. It is a toiva, an abomination. The word toiva, which appears in the Torah six times, is a specifically technical word. We are dealing with the book of Leviticus, which legislates human activity in a cold and impersonal fashion. We are told to eat this, not eat that. Go here and not there. Do this, don't do that. It is essentially a book of rules. This is why traditionally it was the first book to be studied by a Jewish youth. The problem is that words such as abomination or abhorrence are filled with judgment. This allows critics of same-sex marriage to polemicize against the homosexual individual. But Leviticus deems the action and not the subject to be the problem. This is the key point of the term to'eva. Modern biblical scholar Mary Douglas suggests that we translate to Eva as you must utterly reject or stay away from. To call the subject an abomination in themselves is to miss the point. The classification as a Eva protects the subject from human interference without demonizing the individual. Let's take shrimp for an example. Leviticus also calls all shellfish Eva. That is, off limits, stay away. God creates the teeming creatures of the world on the sixth day of creation, the same day we humans first show up. God concludes this day by calling all of these creations, including the shrimp, good. Likewise, all of humanity, no matter the gender 
or the sexual persuasion good. Therefore, we misinterpret the text when we classify the subject as sinful or immoral. We can no less call a homosexual wicked or deviant as we can a shrimp or an octopus. All of God's creations are honored and celebrated. So why must we treat some subjects one way and others another, according to Leviticus? Why would teeming and swarming animals such as shellfish be, be deemed taboo by God? According to Douglas, the issue is one of fertility. Swarming and teeming animals such as shellfish, caterpillars, and crabs are symbols of fruitfulness in animal creation. They have many, many babies, and save for the power of natural selection, many progeny. Therefore, eating such teeming creatures, according to the book of Leviticus, may offend God's avowed concern for fertility. Remember that being innumerable, like dust, like the sand of the sea, signified desirable fertility in the promise of God to Abraham. Our highest ancestral aspiration is to become as fertile as these teeming creatures, such as shrimp. In the meantime, as custodians of the earth, we should not interfere with God's commandment to prue or voo, go forth and multiply. And so we are prohibited from using those animals which prue or voo the most. So shellfish and creepy crawlers are out. So the real issue of Leviticus is fertility. The Torah regards homosexuality as a to'eva, stay away, because it limits the human ability to go out and multiply. This might explain why the Torah is curiously silent when it comes to lesbianism. If there is no seed being wasted, then there's no harm done for the book. Later rabbis prohibited lesbian relations, but did so on rabbinic midrash because there is no evidence, no source in the Torah itself to forbid it. In fact, Maimonides, the medieval philosopher, forbids lesbianism not on the grounds that it's wrong, but rather that it was practiced by the Egyptians, and so would be a form of assimilation. Viewing this issue in this light, a plethora of questions arise. Does the biblical view of homosexual relationships hold water in an era of adoption, surrogacy, and in vitro fertilization, not to mention global overpopulation, limitation of natural resources, and food epidemics? The Torah views the earth as vast and limitless. In a smaller world with limited resources, does the commandment of pru or vu to go forth and multiply truly stand? In a country like Uganda, which struggles with its limited resources and high rate of births, is homosexuality really such a taboo? Obviously, same-sex relationships are more controversial in nature than shrimp, or else Fisherman's Wharf would be crowded with many zealots. But religious leaders base their conviction not only on the idea of to'eva, but on two key narratives from the Bible. And here I'd like to focus on these for a moment. In both Genesis 19 and Judges 19, we read of hostile crowds seeking to use sodomy as a punishment for their uninvited guests. The more famous of the two is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here, two angels of God are harbored by Lot and his daughters from the wicked people of Sodom when they ask Lot to bring out the men so that they may be intimate with them. Similarly, in Judges 19, a man and his concubine are targeted by the evil residents of Gibeah. 
Using almost the exact same language as found in Genesis, the men of the town asked to be intimate with the stranger. Now there are two notable facets of these narratives. First of all, in both cases, you have otherwise heterosexual men for a moment using homosexuality as a way to punish another individual. There is no concept, no narrative of a loving relationship between two homosexual individuals. Second of all, both narratives view these relations as a form of violent punishment inflicted upon the victim. This is less akin to consenting homosexual relations and more similar to rape. The fact is that the Torah has no concept of consenting loving relationship between two people of the same gender. These stories feature heterosexuals choosing to engage for a brief moment in homosexual activities as a form of brutality. To use these narratives as evidence of God's condemnation of homosexual relations is inaccurate and misleading at best. In the end, the book of Leviticus is primarily interested in God's holiness, legislating the sanctity of life, and preserving the group from external threats. Here we can see where to'eva comes into play. If God is made holy through God's ability to give life, then to limit life and to uh, the fecundity of God's creations would be to limit God's holiness. Similarly, the sanctity of life by limiting life of human beings and of the progeny of the Earth's creations would be to go against the sanctity of life. And finally, if indeed homosexual acts were practiced by members of foreign tribes, then you could see this as an external threat within the eyes of the book of Leviticus. But again, I question whether any of these three stands the modern test of time. The Torah is primarily concerned with perpetuating life protecting the community and avoiding violent forms of punishment. The entire concept of homosexuality as understood by the Torah presents an otherwise heterosexual male choosing to engage in a violent foreign act for punitive purposes. Illustrated this way, then yes, I agree that such an action is barbaric and should be utterly avoided, shunned as a to'eva. But a loving union of two consenting adults who share the privilege and responsibility of raising a family together, especially in a world of limited resources and multiple different ways, paths towards parenting and the creation of a family. At worst, I believe the Torah is silent on the matter. And at best, we may hearken back to God's initial observation of humankind from the book of Genesis. As God says, it is not good for human beings to be alone. I will make a fitting companion for each of them. Such kedusha, such holiness, is deserving of celebration rather than the sort of political witch hunts we've seen most recently. I hope that we all find Kedusha holiness in our own relationships and are able to tolerate those of others as well on this Shabbat as we enter Leviticus. Shabbat Shalom.